You're listening to Don't Waste Water. As investors in the earliest stages, we recognize that there's four types of capital, intellectual capital, human capital, social capital, financial capital, and all of them are the most important thing in different situations. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. Exiting for us is not just a financial event. It's enabling this company that we were backing early on to finally be able to reach customers in regions around the world that as a small company was not able to do. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome John Robinson as my guest. Some of these outside investors, they're just checking the box on water and then they move on. I know that sounds cynical and they would probably disagree with me, but there's just a lot of uh, money out there that's just looking to do water. John is a partner and co-founder of Mazarin Ventures. You get to a point where the company's nearing five, 10 million in sales, maybe it's time for the founder to step aside and be the CTO and enable somebody else to come in and be the CEO. Mazarin is an impact investor backing young technology companies with innovations that address some aspects of water risk, including quality and quantity. When you're working in the water industry, it is tempting to go for broad quotes like water is life. Sure, that's true, but it might be a bit too general of a statement to be translated into concrete business. That's why John and his founding team at Mazarin have been clear from day zero when they wrote their investment thesis. In the age of climate change and its extreme events, galloping urbanization or increased water scarcity, water is a risk. New technologies can help our world mitigate that risk, and this in all the dimensions of the ESG framework. Hence, speeding up the time to market of these emerging solutions induces an impact, turning Mazarin Ventures into an impact investor. In my conversation with John, we'll explore how that twist in the definition of water-related challenges and opportunities translates into concrete steps, and how Mazarin articulates its actions from its labs to its Fund 1, Fund 2 and Blue House investment funds. You'll get to understand why the exit is fully part of the impact process, which type of capital is the most important at which stage of a company's development, and how Mazarin ambitions to find entrepreneurs that have been to the future and came back. There's much more to unpack in this week's conversation with John, so we'll swiftly take off. But while you buckle up, if you like what you hear, please remember to share that episode with a colleague, a friend, or an entrepreneur you know that shall definitely reach out to Mazarin. Steal their phone, subscribe them to the podcast, and come tell me on LinkedIn what you liked or didn't like about it. Come on, do it, and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, John. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be back again. That's an interesting one because I'm saying back to the show, even though for people listening to that, that's the first time they hear you. But it's a retake of a first interview we cut 
last week and we didn't just throw it off because it wasn't good it was a brilliant interview but it turns out we don't have it on tape so <laughs> that one is is the one which we have on tape and i'm really excited to have that conversation with you because there's a ton of stuff which i'd like to to address in the way you look at the water sector in the way you look at water itself but that starts all with my tradition of the postcard and you're sending today a postcard from the uk right yeah that's correct i'm in london right now so I let you decide if you want to send a postcard from Mazarin's headquarters or from London right now. The postcard's coming from London, where it is 19 degrees and cloudy with a touch of rain. <laughs> Imagine that. So it's, uh, and I think the last time we did this interview, I was in northern Wisconsin in the U.S. from my family's tree farm. So I've gone from deep in rural America to what is arguably one of the global commercial, cultural, economic hubs of the world. So I work the extremes. And I can just imagine where you will be next. So <laughs> Port Portugal, maybe. Portugal, maybe. <laughs> Actually, you're not coming from the desert. I've heard some of your other appearances on other podcasts. So I'm going to link to them in the comments and try not to repeat myself compared to what my colleagues and estimated podcast guests have asked you. Nevertheless, there's one step in your journey, which is really interesting to me, is how you come to building an investment fund? How do you do that? Is it like black magic? You say, I want to become an investor and, and money starts to, to flow on you. Or how do you do it in concrete steps? The origins. I think that every investment group focused on water or, or, or any industry for that matter that's specialized has their own origin story, their own entry to the business. For Mazarin in particular, our core team of four partners has a unique set of skills that, that enable us to be in the role we play within water. Myself and Anders Halsby have spent a lot of our careers bringing technology to market in different ways. So I ran a consultancy for 10 years focused on helping water-related technologies get into international markets. So when you're a consultant, you touch a lot of technologies, you come across a lot of different sectors and subsectors. The whole consultancy was go-to-market strategy. So that translates nicely into venture because the companies that we're investing in, their big challenge is not creating a, a product, but the, getting to market is really the challenge. So I mean, Anders was doing the same thing for most of his career. Pete Nassos, our, other, our third partner, he spent a lot of his career in sales and marketing roles within water and wastewater. So guess what the challenge these young companies have? Sales and marketing. Go to market is one problem, but then you have to figure out how to sell your offering. So Pete's really good with that. And then Tammy, our fourth partner, she has a background in private equity and venture capital. So it turns out these young companies, this is usually the first time they've raised money or the first time they've had a board or the first time they've structured something. And so Tammy's really good at helping these young companies figure out the financial path forward. And then prior to investment, she's really good at helping us figure out what we should get into and what we should stay out of. So our origin story is a little bit different than other people, but it's a combination of four individuals' experience and expertise has enabled us to start Mazarin. And, and one final thing, the four of us have a very high degree of intentionality around impact, social and environmental impact. We wake up in the morning as investors and as business people, but I think we go to bed at night genuinely concerned with the water risks that the world faces, industry and society. So our mandate is impact, and that's core to everything we do. I'll go a bit deeper into that topic of how you look at water and, and how you you place it on the map and, and what's your somehow your investment thesis, but you define yourself as an impact investor. And according to GSIA numbers, which I consulted before having the discussion with you, there's roughly 15% of the market, which is ESG investment. So that's $35 trillion, 
roughly speaking. And then there's one person of those 35 trillions, which is impact investing. So you are a niche in, in the minority. Mm. You say that's something which you wake up with and which you carry with you the full day and you go to bed with that aim of being an impact investor. Nevertheless, if you want to make money, that's maybe not the first track to follow. So if I'm being a bit of a contrarian here, why did you decide for that path of being an impact investor? I think Mazarin's in a unique position to be able to help humanity. That sounds like a very grandiose claim, but by identifying early stage technology companies that can genuinely help their customers with their E or S or G goals. So our utilization of ESG as a framework is pretty straightforward. We look at, you know, three, 400 deals a year, just like any other VC would. But when we find a company, we have to score them for their potential to help their customer realize their E or S or G goals. So for water, the temptation is to say that it's all E. And clearly E is a big part of water, environmental protection, making sure that the environment that we live in, that animals live in, that plants live in, is protected. And so water and environment are obviously very connected. So pollution is a big part of investing in technologies that mitigate pollution to the environment. So we like technology companies that are able to generate a high degree of E for their customer, whether it's a public sector or private sector customer. On the S side, I mean, I don't know how you can talk about water without talking about social. The most disadvantaged communities in the world are oftentimes the ones that have the most compromised water or are more prone to flooding. Wealthier neighborhoods are generally higher up and low-income neighborhoods are def definitely lower within the topography of a city or a region because they flood more. And wealthier people don't want to live in flood zones and lower-income people end up there, unfortunately. So water, whether it's biological contamination or heavy metals contamination or flooding, so quality or quantity, is a huge S. So any technology that's able to generate S value, so social impact, scores very high on our scale, and that will motivate our checkbook to invest in that company. And then lastly, G, the way we see G is around transparency and democratization of water. So it just doesn't sit right with us that communities don't have visibility into their water risks, whether it's quality risks like contaminated water or quantity risks like flooding or drought or availability. So if a company isn't able to democratize that data and democratize tools to understand that data and create transparency and enable the community to have a voice, most importantly, low-income communities to have a voice, that's a huge G. And so we like companies that have been able to do that. And if anybody in your audience is interested, I'm more than happy to go through our Fund One portfolio of 13 companies and talk about specifically how each of those companies generates either E or S or G, or oftentimes it's a combination between the three. Well, actually, let's do that now. Let's go through your, your portfolio because actually what's interesting in your take, that's that full water story, is that you're an impact investor, that you define it. You're an ESG investor. You, you define that as well. You invest in water. That's also one of the elements, but you don't invest in the water industry per se. You invest in the consequences of water. You invest in, in the externalities and what, what water can cause, what water can be as a risk, all the shades of water which are not core to the water industry. So first, why so? And second, can you give us like concrete examples of how that translates into your portfolio? Sure. So uh, we are in the water industry, and the water industry is generally defined as municipal and industrial water distribution and treatment. That, that's a traditional definition of the water industry. But there's so many applications outside of the water industry where there's risk. So I'll, I'll just quickly do a quick tour for your audience, just a sentence or two on each of our Fund One portfolio companies and the impact they generate. So starting alphabetically with aquamembranes, essentially aquamembranes has generated a, a 3D printed spacer technology 
which is utilized within the membrane element in order to protect the membrane from fouling and scaling. So aquamembranes is a performance improvement technology for RO membranes that enables significantly less energy use within the RO process. As your audience might know, reverse osmosis uh, demands a tremendous amount of energy to create the osmotic pressure to realize the potential of RO. And energy means carbon. I would park them in climate tech as much as they are in water tech. The ability for aquamembranes to, to improve the performance of RO membranes means more water availability for communities in need. So I would consider that a public health and safety innovation because it's enabling communities to have water where it previously wouldn't have it. If I try to understand the nitty-gritty details, that means you have an E impact and an S impact. E because you're helping with, with the water and S because you're making more water available and at less energy. Correct. Correct. So that would be an E and an S. Aquoso? Aquoso is straight up a fintech company. The customers of Aquoso are all banks, increasingly insurance companies, and there's some corporates sort of starting to get interested in it. But Aquoso is essentially doing one thing. It's enabling stakeholders, lenders mostly, the ability to understand the water security risk or the climate risk of their customer, the lendee. So you want to borrow money from a bank, the bank has to understand what your ability is to repay that loan. But if you don't have the water available, you have too much water, let's say you're in a flood zone, that's a risk that previously was not quantified. So Aquoso is essentially a decision support tool for banks to understand the lendee's water security risk. They don't operate in the water sector. They operate in fintech, but the whole problem, the whole risk that the banks are looking to manage is water. So it is water, but it's not the water industry. I would consider that a, a very high G score because it's creating transparency around water security risk of, in the marketplace. And I would say it's a high degree of E because it's enabling more efficient distribution of capital to lendees that are able to be better stewards of whatever water is available. The next one just moving forward is Box of Rain. So Box of Rain is essentially an emergency water solution. So a lot of utilities and the disaster events, the most immediate need for the community is safe drinking water. So Box of Rain's innovated a suite of products that enable the disaster relief or emergency relief organization to be able to get safe drinking water or containers to distribute safe drinking water into the hands of communities at a very cost efficient and environmentally um, sound way. So the incumbent solution is just plastic water bottles. I mean, it's a disaster. So people don't really have too much time to think about environmental issues, but it creates a sort of the disaster after disaster where there's mountains of plastic water bottles in a disaster scene. Box of Rain is, is targeting those kind of situations to deliver water with less plastic in a more cost-effective way. So it's very much an S. And then I would say it also scores high on E and a touch of G because it's enabling uh, disadvantaged communities to have access to resources that previously were not offered to them. But it's mostly an S. Next one, Conservation Labs. Conservation Labs lives in prop tech. Their technology lives within buildings, period. And building owners and operators have problems with plumbing and appliances within water-related plumbing and appliances and, and property. So Conservation Labs is leveraging an audio sensor, sensor technology to listen to the flow of water through pipes or through appliances to understand normal abnormal behavior of that plumbing or appliance. And then leveraging AI, you can start to categorize or predict likelihood of problems within the plumbing or the appliance. So their customers are building owners or operators or occupants that has faced water risk within property. So they're just as much in smart home, smart building and prop tech as they are in water. Problem is water, but their customers are building owners or operators. Same thing with Clear, another one of our portfolio companies, they're in pool tech. You have just S. Jens Jensen, the CEO of, of Clear, he will tell you right away they're in pool tech, which is a subsegment of smart home. It's enabling owners and operators a pool, whether it's a private pool or a 
a university swimming pool or a public pool, the ability to get more visibility and, and control over the, the pool risk. So this is very much an asset. That's creating transparency and enabling everybody to understand what the status is of the asset. Anytime you're creating democratization of data and transparency, it's a very high G in our mind. So Clear's intentionality is to democratize tools that enable healthier pool management. I think that, that gives us um, an understanding of how you approach all of them. If, if any of your audience wants to go through these one by one with us to understand the calculus behind our investments in these, schedule a separate call with your audience. But if you get the flavor of how we approach things. Absolutely. So all, all of these 13 companies, they live into one fund. So it's Fund One from Mazarin Ventures. Correct. And I'm wondering, that fund is a bit special, if, if I'm right. Really, for the muggles, it's an evergreen fund. So that means that all those companies, we understand how you, you look at them and what they do and how they solve for some E, some S, some G, some G topics. But what is an, an evergreen fund and what does it change for those companies? Yeah, an evergreen fund is a fund that doesn't have a, a finite timeline and it enables us to continue investing in companies over the years as they grow. So many of these companies are fund one. We've cut multiple checks to a couple of them, only one check that was required, but mm, I think that was only one company we've only, what two companies out of 13, we've only cut one check to, but most of them, we continue to invest over the years as they require further financial capital. We have the ability to do it. So Mazarin's on track to cutting five or six checks a year. And we have the ability to keep doing that, I guess, in perpetuity. So we don't have a very clear or a very finite timeline like most funds do on a five-year investment timeline and then five years of harvesting exits. We'll continue investing in perpetuity out of fund one. What is the typical shape of one of these companies when it enters the fund? And, and when do you think they are mature enough so that you probably are not the one anymore that can help them to grow to, to the next stage? The criteria for a fund one check is companies that are in market nearing a million dollar US dollars in sales. So they already have some customers, and we think that this year or in the coming year, they will be at a million dollars in, in top-line sales. They can't be grants. They can't be non-dilutive money from the government. That means customers paying them near a million dollars. That's the key requirement of financially for the company to be qualified for a fund one investment. Also, at this stage, these are seed stage companies that are in market. At this point, the, the, the vision of the founder is crucial. And because we're impact investors, the intentionality around the founder is, is, is crucial as well. But we need the founder of the company to be able to articulate a future that is compelling to us. So the product itself, of course, has to work. And we have to understand the engineering principles behind it or the market competitiveness of the product. But it's the quality of the founder's insight alone that sometimes generates enough interest for us to invest. So we put a very high emphasis on the founder's vision or co-founder's vision. And their ability to articulate a future that maybe we can't see or the market can't see yet, but they have a, some sort of asymmetric advantage in the market because they see what other people don't see. And their product that they've invented has enabled them to capture markets share that incumbents or others are not able to capture. So that's a very important part of our criteria. Financially nearing a million dollars in top line. Secondly, um, a founder that can articulate a vision. Uh, and lastly, um, because it's so early stage and we're on the phone with these companies pretty regularly, it has to be a high degree of chemistry between Mazarin and the management team and the founder, where there's a mutual respect and a trust between us that we have some puzzle pieces, they have some puzzle pieces. Let's make sure that we respect each other's opinions and strategies, and let's get to the next milestone together. So the next step milestone is why we launched Fund 2. So we're Fund 2, which we haven't cut a check out of yet. 
is focused on growth stage companies. So companies that are nearing $10 million at US dollars in sales, those companies need a very different type of support than the fund one companies because they're more mature in the market and they're already sort of starting to pop up on the radar of corporates. And so our fund two is focused on growth stage companies that at this point, the founder's vision is less important than the board composition and the sub-market that they're operating in their competitive advantage. And that's sort of our criteria for fund two. Fund two is, is currently rolling out. So you have these 13 companies within fund one and fund two is seeking its targets. Will it be the 13 which will flow into fund two or do you also look for other prospects? Other prospects as well. Some of the fund one companies will receive a fund two check. And then fund two will also include some companies that were not in fund one for whatever reason, but are nearing 10 million in sales. And fund two um, has an appetite to invest in that. You know, another thing I should share with your audience is that of our fund one, 45% of the companies, 45% of the 13, their IP is essentially rooted in data science. Something in the data science toolbox enables them to generate value. I, I know that people call it digital or, or something, but essentially it's leveraging IoT to ingest data in a new way and then applying tools within the AI toolbox to generate new insights and predictive um, analytics around the product. So that fund one is heavily into data science and fund two will continue on that trajectory. We have a very big focus on capital light innovations, which kind of steers us clear of equipment. And, and capital. I was going to say that yeah. no hardware, basically. A, a couple of our companies, so Swirltex, Swirltex and Electromat, both touch more capital uh, intensive than the other companies. But the founder's vision for both those companies and their competitive advantage was compelling enough for us to participate in those capital intensive businesses. We have the, this clear framework. If I try to recap it and to make like like the portrait of a typical company which enters from one, it has one million of sales, impact entrepreneurs, an asymmetric advantage on the market. And, and it has a good affinity with Mazarin because you will be working quite closely with them. And then there's a special hint, which you say 45% of them are into data science and are rather capital light. So that gives us the typical portrait. And you also explain how they jump to fund two when they reach the, that mark of the 10 million of sales. How long between those two milestones? What, what's your vision there? We expect to exit our investments in these companies between three to five years from first investment. And by exit, I mean a later stage investor or a corporate comes in and takes us out of the cap table. So that would be an exit. So we would invest money and within three to five years, somebody would come and take us out of the business, which is, I think our, our role has been accomplished. So that's the same for fund one or fund two. And so for fund two, that investment would often take out our fund one investment. So our fund one would get would see its ROI from a fund to investment. So our target is three to five years, but the world is, is not always an, on such an accelerated timeline. Sometimes it could take five to seven years, but our target is by five years, we will exit all of our fund one companies from the data first check of those of each company. The clock starts ticking and then fund two, the same thing, three to five years, we expect to be in and out uh, of those companies and enabling later stage investors to add their value. Success for us is exiting to a corporate that has a global network, that can enable this small company to reach more customers globally and therefore generate even more impact. So exiting for us is not just a financial event. It's enabling this company that we were backing early on to finally be able to reach 
customers in regions around the world that as a small company was not able to do. So the exit for us is a big part of our vision on impact. It's interesting. You mentioned how you look at asymmetric advantage from the companies you're backing, but it sounds to me like yourself as an investment fund, you also have an asymmetric view at the market because if I recall what, what Paul O'Callaghan was sharing on that microphone some months ago, he was looking at the dynamics of water innovation, so really uh, the, the core of the water industry, and there the timelines would be between the first pilot and the moment you're in the middle of the market, it would be 12 to 16 years. And you are able to see accelerated timelines of three to five years. You said if it's slow, it's seven years, but seven years arguably is still very fast if you compare to the core of that. So that means that you found that edge or that asymmetric part or that differentiated approach to the market, which means that you're evolving in niches or in the periphery of that core world industry, which allows you to go significantly faster. Yeah, I think that when you approach technology investing like we do, there is a different time. I mean, if you just look through our, our fund one companies there, so our three to five year time horizon is from when we invest to exit. So the clock starts ticking on our investment and we'll, and we'll exit within three to five years. Now the company might've been operating for two or three years before we cut them a check. So something like Conservation Labs, I think we got in 2019 for the first time, and then we cut another check in 2020 if my memory serves me correctly. But Mark Kovacek, the founder of Conservation Labs, he'd been working on this for at least two years before we showed up. So the company's been around for, let's say, six or seven years now. But as early stage investors, we have a different time horizon. But I think it's the framing of the water industry that is by definition more conservative and slower. And a lot of those technologies are treatment technologies. Or And if they're sensing and monitoring diagnostic tools, and they're focusing on municipalities, of course, it's going to be slower. And so if you look at a lot of our portfolio companies, they're not necessarily in municipalities. In fact, we only have one of 13 that is pure play utilities, and that's WaterClick. And the reason WaterClick is interesting, and the reason we decided to go into municipalities and the water industry is because it's an enabling technology to enable other software and sensor companies to reach utilities. So it's a platform to accelerate digitization. It's not a new software or sensor in its own right. So Mazarin decided a couple of years ago, the only way we would get into municipal heavy stuff is if we could build or invest in a company that could accelerate digitization of small, medium-sized utilities. And th that company, WaterClick, has a much faster growth trajectory because it's not selling a sensor. It's not selling a software and it's not selling a pump or a valve or some membrane technology or primary or secondary treatment technology. It's a platform that's accelerating digital tools to get the customer's technology. So it's a totally different animal than the ones that traditionally have popped up in Bluetech's market analysis of time to exit. We're cutting the market differently and seeing the market differently. And, and, and other investors have their own thesis and their own framework, which is exciting to see that, other, that different people are tackling the market differently. Is it a, a real way to cut the market and look at it differently? Or is it a marketing angle? I'm trying to be a contrarian here. It, no, it's a just... not a marketing angle. It's a real way to cut the market. I'll give you an example. Everyone likes examples. Our portfolio company, Simple Lab, based in California. Simple Lab is in the environmental testing labs business. If you ask the CEO of Simple Lab, he would say they're not in the water industry. They're in the business of environmental testing labs. So I don't know how many are in other countries, but I know in the United States, there's several hundred 
government-certified environmental testing labs. And just use, imagine a lab, and they have a lot of expensive equipment that can generate tests and results to understand what's in your sample. So guess which industry needs to do a lot of tests? The water industry. But does that mean that Simple Lab's in the water industry? No. Nope. They are water quality testing is a risk for owners and operators of water assets. And labs traditionally have been somewhat analog and slow, and the reports are sometimes hard to read. So Simple Lab has brought the labs forward and made the labs more relevant to anybody who has to test their water quality, whether it's a utility or in a, in a factory or a conservation group or me in my home. It's bringing efficiencies to the environmental testing labs services business than it is the water industry. So that's a different way of cutting water. In that respect, it's sort of bringing efficiencies to owners and operators of water assets, then selling them a new valve or a pump or a DAF solution or some sort of software to manage their X, Y, or Z asset. So a different way of looking at, at opportunities. I was trying to push a bit here. I have to be sometimes a bit of a contrarian. I'm wondering, what, what's the level of risk you're taking with those companies? So far, I guess you have a 100-person survival rate, mm -hmm, yeah. but on the long run, that might not be the case. First and foremost, our biggest risk is that we get something wrong. Then we invest in a company that somehow we had some blind spots or we didn't understand that what, what the market potential was or the impact potential, and we just get it wrong just like anybody else or any other group, you're not going to get it right 100% of the time. So our biggest risk is that we get one of these wrong. We totally misread the, the opportunity. The second risk is something happens to the founder. For whatever reason, they're not able to run the company anymore. And that's the second biggest risk is that we lose the key person. And that's kind of scary because you know we could probably find a replacement for the person, but oftentimes the early stage investors, the biggest concern is that the founder is either unable to operate the company or it gets to a point where they need to step aside and they're not willing to step aside to allow somebody else to come in and take the reins. So sometimes you get founders who are extremely technical and they're doing their best on the business side of things, but you get to a point where the company's nearing five, 10 million in sales. Maybe it's time for the founder to step aside and be the CTO and enable somebody else to come in and be the CEO. That's a risk. So it's sort of founder risk. Beyond those two risks, the macroeconomic environment is not something we, can, we, we think about too much. Because all of these companies, they're in businesses, there's likely to be steady demand for every one of these offerings, whether it's a bear market or a bull market globally. So it's founder risk and then our, um, our own calculus risk. We've explored so far Fund 1 and Fund 2. So Fund 1, which is your first, your first body, and, and, and Fund 2, which is the continuation of Fund 1 and more. But you have two more siblings in the family. You have your Mazarin Labs and you have Blue House. So those are at the two ends of the story. So what are the labs and what is Blue House? We created labs because Mazarin was coming across very early stage innovations. Founders or postdocs, university graduates or PhDs that had an idea or some entrepreneur that was pre-everything. No website, not even a name. Or inventions from other industries where we saw applications, water-related applications, but this technology was invented for doing something else, but we wanted to bring it across the fence to address water risks. And so we found ourselves passing on a lot of these early stage things because they didn't meet the criteria of Fund One. They were not nearing a million dollars in sales. And the founder hadn't quite articulated a vision that was compelling yet. But we had a vision for this invention. We had some our own vision for something. So we created labs in order for us to participate 
and opportunities at the very earliest stages. And it leverages our Mazarin team's entrepreneurial interests and our capabilities to be able to help get an idea from pre-seed to seed. And then once it's in the seed stage and in market, well, then it can receive a check from fund one. So we kind of created labs out of necessity. And we've organized labs around nine workbenches. Every workbench in labs is, has its own dedicated focus. It's all virtual labs. We don't physically have a lab somewhere. But each workbench is piled high with good ideas, bad ideas, crazy ideas. It's a skunk works. It's, a, it's an incubator where we can take some risks and we can be a bit maverick in our approach to things. And we can hypothesize around, you know, it'd be nice if somebody did this. Or what would be compelling is if someone did that. So we kind of formulate these hypotheses and then we try to find people, place, or thing out there in the the market to bolt on to that vision. And so one company that recently graduated from our labs and received a check from Fund One is WaterClick. So we had this vision about a year and a half ago around small utilities. And we looked around the market and around our deal flow for companies that had tools to help small utilities around the world. And we just couldn't find what we were looking for in our deal flow or in the marketplace. So we had this vision of creating this cloud platform that enabled digital tools, software and and sensors, to be able to more effectively reach small utilities. And we bumped into this founder named Chris Sosnowski, who was running a company called Waterly, and he he had a shared worldview. He said, totally, we've got to accelerate digitization to smaller guys, smaller utilities. They don't even know what AI is. They can't afford expensive integrations. And so we had a, a good chemistry. And so he came to our lab's workbench meetings and we workbenched this idea for six months. And then we finally figured out what to do. And we launched WaterClick last October and now WaterClick's in market. So that's a sort of a success case out of our labs. We have a couple other ones that have come out of our labs, but we also have a list of failures of stuff that is still in labs and we haven't figured out what to do with it yet or stuff that we've totally shelved and we've killed because We just can't figure out the path forward. So labs is a safe place for us to be right on things and wrong on things. We have the luxury of having our own incubator as investors. Is it the same skill set and and the same job for Mazarin to be like an incubator, but also friends and family and and a pre-seed round than it is to grow a company from from 1 to 10, like you do in in Fund 1, or from 10 to 100, which you do in Fund 2? It sounds like like different words. Labs is 0 to 1. Yeah. And I would say Fund 1 is one to five. And I would say fund two is five to 10. So it's nearing 10. The fund two of the criteria is the company's nearing 10 million in sales. We'll probably do 10 million in next year. So the one to, the zero to 10 scale is actually pretty helpful. But that zero to one, financial capital is not really the most important thing in labs. Mm-hmm. It's the intellectual capital, the human capital, and most importantly, the social capital, the endorsement. So part of our lab's contributions is bringing in our network of friends who are experienced veterans in, in industry and bringing them into the conversations and bringing them into onto the board or into the management team in some way to help that company go from zero to one. And once the company gets to one, they've figured out what the market is and they're in market and they can sell. At that point, financial capital starts to become more important. You need fuel in the machine. So as investors in the earliest stages, we recognize that there's four types of capital, intellectual capital, human capital, social capital, and financial capital. And all of them are the most important thing in different situations. 
Um, but at the earliest stages, the least important is financial capital. Our, our fourth and, and final sibling in, the, in our Mazarin family is Blue House. So Blue House Investments is what we call an international impact fund. It's a small fund, and it's a pilot fund, really, for us. We're just trying it out. But the whole focus of Blue House is on diagnostic tools. So by diagnostics, I mean testing technologies and monitoring technologies around water and wastewater. So the premise for this fund is that many communities in the Global South, the base of the pyramid, countries like Cambodia or Guatemala or Burkina Faso, just to name a few, yes, they have water problems. Yes, they have some sort of water crisis, to use sort of general terms. But our insight is that they have diagnostic tools problems. The tools that those communities are using to understand their water problems are analog. They're from the 60s and 70s and 80s. They're using dated tools to understand flooding of the river or what type of contaminants are in their drinking water or well health or any other water-related risk that that community faces. We can generate a significant amount of environmental and social impact by getting more modern diagnostic tools in the hands of that community. Now, where are those tools? Most of those tools are in the global north. And so Blue House's mission is to invest in companies in the global north. And then the founder of that company needs to have a high degree of intentionality and the ability to fly to Guatemala or Cambodia or Burkina Faso and figure out how to get their genius invention around testing and monitoring in the hands of base of the pyramid communities. So it, the, the mission here is to accelerate the flow of technology from global north to global south. And the mission is also to help those communities get out ahead of their water risks by getting more sophisticated diagnostic tools in their hands that already exist in the global north. So what's that one quote about the future's already here, it's just not equally distributed? Blue House is distributing the future. It's making sure that the same diagnostic tools that we can use in London are now available in Burkina Faso. That is a grand vision. I realize it's potentially a, a little bit, uh, I'm oversimplifying the, the complexity of doing that. But the vision is to make sure that diagnostic tools are available for anybody who wanna, wants to understand their water risk. So in, in some sense, it is democratization of technology. And it's making sure that every human being on the planet has the opportunity to understand their water risk. And then once you can, what is the quote? If you can't measure it, you can't improve it. So, so that's our impact goal for Blue House. Um, and we haven't cut any check out of that yet, but a couple of the companies we're looking at for Blue House are in fund one. And it's and so, so the catch or the, the angle of Blue House is that some founders might not want to jump in an airplane and fly to Cambodia. <clears throat> their existing cap table and their board and their owners might decide, you know, we just need to focus on Europe or let's focus on North America. Let's first get to a point where we can get the company in a more stable and established position before we start to go to Cambodia and Guatemala. But other founders, they recognize that in these communities around the world, it's an urgent problem. And the sooner they can get their technology in the hands of that community in Guatemala, the better. So it really comes down to the founder's intentionality around allocating time and energy and resources to fly into the base of the pyramid countries. So those are our four siblings, Labs, Fund One, Fund Two, and Blue House. And each one has its own mission but they all share a similar back-end infrastructure, which is Mazarin. I think from the way you present them, the way you're engaged in the mission of each of these companies, we feel how you, how you get involved yourself into your portfolio companies. Is it the same for the four of you inside Mazarin? You're all like part of the team of those 13 companies, or do you also sit back and say, hey, 
we've cut a check, you have your targets, let's make sure you meet them. In labs, we all participate to different degrees, but just like anything, it depends on the project, it depends on the workbench, but we all participate in different ways. There's some that I'm deeper into, and there's some that Anders is deeper into, and Pete and Tammy. So we kind of share the load in labs. Uh, fund one, same thing. And there's some companies that I'm closer to or on the board of, and some companies that Tammy, Pete, and Anders are closer to. So we kind of share the load on things about whatever feels comfortable. I have a better chemistry with this founder, and Anders has a better chemistry with that founder for whatever reason. And for fund two in Blue House, the responsibilities will be shared. But Time management becomes a big challenge for us. We've got a lot of moving parts here. And so we, we need to make sure that we have our priorities and our schedules cleared for prioritization of, of what's the most important thing today. You mentioned the human <clears throat> capital, which is somehow what we are discussing here with the relationship we, you have with, uh, with those companies. Obviously, the 13 you're in are the ones where you clicked and you had a good bond, but I guess there must be much more that you've met, which somehow were ticking the other criterion, but not that one of the affinity to Mezzarin. But generally speaking, what is the, the number one mistake you, you keep seeing in that human capital or the way entrepreneurs or impact entrepreneurs look at the market? What is that single thing which annoys you and you would like to share to everyone? Stop that and you'll be so much more successful. Yeah, I would say the number one thing is that the founder of the company we're looking at, they, they don't have a convincing grasp of the customer. They're very product-centric because they've worked so hard on their baby and they've developed a product that works. 99 out of 100 times, the product usually works as advertised. But they have a, a loose understanding of the customer's problem and need and that the motivations and the buying behavior of the customer is still elusive to them. And that's the biggest mistake they make. And so if a company really doesn't have that, it's not the end of the world, but we will steer them to labs. And we will say, hey, let's go into labs and let's work on the customer discovery and let's really understand the customer. But some founders, they say, no, I don't need to go back to school. I just need money. It's like, well, to go after what customer? And they articulate some version of the customer that they know. But if we don't sense that the founder has a command of the customer, we're not going to invest. Number one. So, so if we have an hour to, to, to spend time with a founder We want to talk about the customer and the market landscape and competing offerings for 45 minutes and then let's spend 15 minutes talking about the product. Typically, founders want to talk about the product for 45 minutes and then the customer for the last 15 minutes. So that's the number one reason. The number two reason is, is valuation, that oftentimes these young companies, they've done a preliminary round or something or a friends and family round or they were on stage at some accelerator and they fancy their valuation to be 15, 20, 30 million on just a million or less in sales. <clears throat> Does the product work? Sure, of course it works. Is the founder smart and capable? Probably. But the valuation um, is the second reason why we pass because we don't feel the valuation reflects where they are in their journey. And so we, we have to pass on those ones where we feel like the, the valuation is a bit inflated. Those are the two main reasons why we pass. I have a curveball for you in that field, actually, because right now in the market, if you look at the water sector, so now a bit more inside the water industry than your portfolio companies, there are, and I'm not going to give names, but but there are companies with the same level of sales than the one you would have in fund one, so between one and five millions, and valuations which go through the roof, like almost unicorns, if not actually unicorns. 
Do you have a rational for that? I mean, you're an investor. You put valuation as one of the two main mistakes that entrepreneurs might be doing. So I guess investors must all have that common sense of not trying to inflate for the sake of inflating. So how do you explain the current level of valuations we see, which are often attributed to the ESG wave? So it's somehow related to to, to that topic. You know, there's some funds out there that are, are, I know this sounds contrarian and maybe a little bit cynical, but they're just checking the box for water. So they've done their their investment in gender or race, poverty, or some other uh, clean energy. And then, oh, we have to do a water one. So they look at the 15 or 20 deals they see in water and they find one that looks pretty good and they invest. I mean, I hate to question their due diligence capabilities, but there's some of the companies are some of these outside investors, they're just checking the box in water and then they move on. I know that sounds cynical and they would probably disagree with me, but there's just a lot of uh, money out there that's just looking to do water. And they get into companies without really an understanding of the, the market that the founders are going after. So later stage money, later stage investors, it's less important. Later stage investors and later stage companies, they just need money, period. But you go down to the forest floor where we are, the companies need some guidance and some mentorship on market strategy and, and sales and marketing. And so we found a lot of these non-water centric investors have inflated valuations, unfortunately. And that's made it hard for investors like us to participate because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the second reason why we pass on companies is is inflated valuations. So so that's unfortunate. So there is some frothy bubble happening a little bit in water. But you know, over time bubbles don't always last and there's a sort of a day of reckoning. But you know, we have our labs. And so if a company doesn't make it, they can come back to us and maybe we can reboot them or we can rebuild the company with a better vision once they sort of run out of money and they collapse. But we've seen a lot of companies throw in the towel and, and, and just close or, or sell for pennies on the dollar. And one of the values of our incubator is that, hey, before you sell the company for pennies on the dollar, why don't you re-incubate? Let's go back to school and let's reboot this company with a better strategy. And so we've approached some companies on that, but oftentimes the founders and the investors are just interested in selling and getting out instead of rebooting because rebooting requires another three or four years of work and they prefer just to exit the business for a loss and move on to the next thing. Uh, one, one realm in particular where there's been a lot of struggle is in membranes. There's been a lot of companies struggle in the membrane space and sell eventually for pennies on the dollar. And that's been a vertical where we've really avoided the membrane space. A couple of our portfolio companies, Aquamembrane and, and Swirltex, they're in the membrane realm, but not the membrane itself. Swirltex is in the pretreatment for UF membranes and Aquamembranes is the spacer that improves the performance of membranes, but not membranes themselves. So happy to elaborate that further with your audience on a separate call. I would have one last question question for you for this. I mean, your clever eye on, on, on that topic. It's a riddle I've had on that microphone several times because I've seen the two various shades of it. What would you expect to be the best profile for a wannabe entrepreneur in that field? Is it someone coming from the industry which might know the ins and outs of the customer pain and, and the technologies or someone from outside the industry which might have a totally fresh eye? What do you mean by the industry? Water industry. How do you define the water industry? So it gets back to our. <laughs> I guess that's a tricky question. I mean, in order to sell to property owners, you have to understand the motivations and the risks of property owners: fire suppression system, point of use, point of entry, leak detection, pool, irrigation, water appliances. 
If you're an owner of a property globally, water's a big headache for you, but they're not in the water business. They're in the business of running a property, but water is just a big headache for them. And if you're a manufacturer of pulp and paper or a manufacturer of apparel or textiles, guess what the biggest headache is for water, for, for, for pulp and paper and textiles? Water, but they're not in the water industry. They're textiles guys and pulp and paper guys. So an entrepreneur that comes from pulp and paper or comes from textiles will have a much better grasp of the customer pain than somebody who's just a product person. And they can usually go out and find the the, the, tech, the engineering and technology capabilities to – there's no shortage of innovation out there around software and hardware. But the missing piece is usually the command of customer, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is our primary – Interest is the founder's vision of how the customers will be buying over the next few years, the vision for the future. In a sentence, we're in the business of water as a risk. That's a new framing. Now, does it take us into utilities? Of course. Utilities face risks in the source water, distribution of water, and the compliance. Does it take us into industrial water and wastewater? Of course. Industrial water, all kinds of water-related risks. But that also takes us into another, like power generation, thermoelectric power, the whole business is water. Is that the water? It's the power generation business where water is a problem. So that's a different framing than what other investors maybe offer. It's a fascinating framing. I mean, you just created the war. Everybody is posting about the was. So water is a service and you have water as a risk. So it's a very water. interesting one. I think it gives a clear lens towards what you're doing with Mazarin. Which makes me for a smooth transition to my really last question, that deep dive. What's your definition of success for Mazarin? Our definition of success is that all of our portfolio companies are able to exit to larger corporates with global networks that are able to realize the full global potential of that technology. That's our goal. If a big corporate is able to help this company from Calgary or from Berkeley, California or Lexington, Kentucky, wherever they are, reach a community in Indonesia or in India or in Mongolia, that's something the small company is not able to do. And only through a large corporate and multinational with global network is able to realize the vision. That's our vision. And if it happens to be a financial event where we exited a, a gain, that's great too. But mo the most, the, our key driver is generating maximum amount of impact, which means the company's got to be on board with a larger distribution network, which is usually a corporate. I think that makes for perfect conclusion for that deep dive actually you gave you gave several times that, that hints that if people want to go a bit deeper with you you're open to, to to that so of course put your contact links in in the episode notes so if you want to go deeper into all of that with, with john and or you have one of these companies and you recognize yourself in one of this portrait of the typical company he would invest in so i guess you'd be happy if, if they reach okay. out i propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions let's just do, to round it up let's do lightning round rapid fire It's time for the rapid fire questions. So I try to keep the questions short and you have to keep the answers short. That's our common pledge. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? WaterClick, because it's democratizing digital water tools to enable the smallest communities in the world to be able to benefit from breakthroughs in sensing and software and decision support that were previously not there. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Saying no to investment opportunities has some 
times created a negative energy between us and the company we've passed on. And we obviously don't want to create any negative energy with any founders, but we've learned the hard way that when you say no to a founder or an entrepreneur, you've got to do it in a way that creates stress between us and them. So going forward, we need to be a lot better at figuring out the appropriate way to pass on deals without coming across as being uninformed and arrogant. So we need to be better at that. We've learned the hard way on that. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? I think our focus on treatment will be eclipsed. We have a couple of investments that we're doing in treatment and purification. I think in 10 years, we will only be focused on diagnostics tools and within diagnostics, probably mostly on AI as a tool to mitigate water and wastewater risk. As investors, where risk is our core uh, investment thesis, it's only natural that we wake up every day and think about AI because the whole promise of AI is to de-risk things. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? The trend to watch out for in the water sector is opportunities outside of what is traditionally defined as the water sector. <laughs> so, so I'll give two examples very briefly since it's lightning round. Snowpack forecasting. A lot of communities on the world, world rely on snowpack melt and spring for their irrigation or for their power generation. Water is a source of a feedstock for hydroelectric power. That's a realm where there's a lot of money going to go into understanding and monitoring snowpack forecasting. Another um, area that we think is really interesting is drip irrigation and sort of irrigation um, efficiency technologies. That's traditionally outside of the water industry, but the growth of irrigation technologies is going to grow a lot in the next uh, decade. And then the third final one is indoor aquaculture. Once you're, in, once you're growing crops, whether it's a plant or a fish indoors, the whole business becomes water. The outcome, outcome is protein or, or, or grain or a plant. But if you're growing things indoors, then you have 100% control of the water distribution to the plant or the crop, which is a really exciting play in the next decade. So all of those are outside of municipalities and industrial water wastewater. So somehow the trend to watch out for is think outside of the box. Correct. So it's, I guess it's a very powerful advice. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? We, we need more entrepreneur, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial activity within water, which means government leaders or corporate leaders ideally need to place more emphasis on cultivating an entrepreneurial community that is recognized as playing an important role in, in, in addressing global challenges. Policy, of course, matters. Large engineering projects, of course, matter. But unfortunately, the entrepreneurial corner of water is getting more attention, but it still is not where it needs to be. And so if I could have a message to global leaders, I would say support entrepreneurship within water with, with whatever resources you have available. And finally, will you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that microphone as soon as possible? Chris Sosnowski from WaterClick. He has the best grasp of small, medium-sized water, wastewater utilities than anybody else I've ever met. And he has a very high intentionality around helping those little guys get out ahead of their operational risks that they face every day in their community. So he is at the intersection of water utilities 
and public health and safety in a way that I haven't met anybody else globally. So I think it would be a fascinating interview for him to unpack his vision and his work in democratization of digital tools. Well, thanks for the advice. Thanks for all the wisdom you've shared over the past hour. Thanks a lot for having made that second pass on that full series of topics. I feel like you've opened many doors, which I would like to explore further. So that might be the first episode, but I could see a sequel where hopefully you're again at a different place. You you were saying maybe Portugal next time. One final comment before we sign off. I, I think it's each investor within water, broadly defined water, has their own thesis. And in their mind, their thesis is right and accurate, just like any investment group, whether you're investing in publicly traded stocks or you're investing in any other industry. It's all about the thesis. And I highly respect every investor's thesis because they see some things in the market that maybe we don't see. And so I think our thesis around water as a risk is just one of many theses out there. And I would encourage you to interview other investors and ask them about their thesis and um, enable your audience to understand how these different investors frame opportunities relating to water. And I think that's encouraged that you, over the course of the next year, try to interview all of the different investors out there. And yeah, let's, let's make that the first one of a series and I have other investors on the microphone to explore all of that. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity and always happy to share our worldview with, with a motivated audience. And thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.